Barry. So this evening's talk is on the three characteristics. The it's hissing, yeah, thank you. The three marks of existence. I'm going to begin with the story of a student of the Buddha who was very close to the Buddha, had been his attendant, had been part of the community for many years, and then left in a kind of disaffected state and became close to uh, King, King Pasanadi, who was ruler of the country where the Buddha was practicing and living. And, and he was talking to the king about the Buddha and saying things that, uh, that came back to the Buddha and were repeated to him. And so this is what he was saying. He was saying, you know, I was close to the Buddha, really close. I lived in the community for many years. I was his attendant. I observed him closely. And I want to tell you, he doesn't show supernatural powers. He doesn't perform miracles. He doesn't seem to be, you know, particularly godlike. All he does is, all he teaches is what he has reasoned and figured out for himself. And all he cares about is whether people are in pain or not. All he cares about is taking away people's pain. And the Buddha heard this and he said, you know, those words were spoken in anger, uh, kind of resentfully, but they are actually the highest praise. So everything that the Buddha taught was indeed just based on his own insight, his own mindful observation of the way that things are. And his insight can be verified, as Noah was talking about so beautifully last night, that his insight can be verified through our own mindfulness practice by our own observation of the way things are. And if we look at our lives honestly, we, you know, when we're observing our minds in a very direct and truthful way, that Noah was talking about last night, we see that indeed left to its own devices, our consciousness is shot through with greed, hate, and delusion. And that's enough to make anybody queasy. It's a kind of um, queasiness or insecurity when we see this and we think we have to fix things, we think we have to somehow secure our relationship with the world out there any way we can. And it's usually by trying to solidify our experiences to make them last or make them go away or make them do what we want them to do. And, you know, we say it's a lousy day. There's nothing lousy about the day. It's just not doing what we want. So we call it names. And... I mean, even the best days don't really do it for us in a lasting way. The problem, as any parent of a young child or a teenager knows, 
is that the territory is constantly changing and it's impossible to make a permanent, you know, this is it, um, now we've got it once and for all, forever and ever, amen, kind of relationship with anyone or with any experience. So the world out there is changing. Our experiences are constantly generating thoughts and feelings that make us queasy. And how about ourself? We might believe in some kind of eternal self or soul or higher power self or something, but when we examine our consciousness closely, we see that it's actually made up of really pretty fleeting mental processes and events. And we see that our self is largely invented. It's like um, an imaginary friend. When my daughter was three, she had an imaginary friend named Gika. And Gika was always there when she was needed. And when things were tough, Gika would have misadventures, like um, getting run over by a truck or getting shots from doctors who would roar up on their motorcycles. Gika would have a terrible time. But Gika, actually like ourselves, was invented from memories and from longings and wishes and from fears. Hillary, my daughter, was in total control of Gika and what happened to her. But the truth of anatta, of the selflessness, this characteristic, this, um, this Buddhist uh, fact of life, is that we cannot control experience. And because deep down we sense that this self we've carefully constructed is imaginary, we feel vaguely uneasy that queasiness arises in the wee hours of the night when we wake up and it's so quiet. So these three things, dukkha or that um, queasiness or insecurity of sensing that things are somehow not quite right, impermanence, anicca in Pali, and anatta, selflessness or emptiness. Uh, these are known as the, these three marks of existence. You could think of them as the Buddhist facts of life or um, these laws that govern our reality. Like Anushka was talking about the law, it's like the law of gravity. Uh, I liked her props. Um, the law of impermanence, um, the law of emptiness that deconstructs the table. And the Buddha described this over and over. He wanted us to see these things in our own experience moment by moment. And he wanted us to do this to free ourselves from taking everything quite so personally so that we could have, so that we can have a bigger, more spacious view of experience. When I learned this teaching, it was pretty, it was kind of something in between dreary and scary, I would say. You know, everything makes us queasy, nothing can be trusted to stay the same. 
or the way I needed it to be in any going, ongoing way, and I don't exist. Um, and I remember being in retreats and very dutifully trying to see things this way, and uh, it was just an idea that I was pasting onto my experience because I was told that this was the Dharma and Nietzsche, not the Dukkha, and you had to see this all the time. Um, but it didn't help at all. And I think the reason it didn't help was because it was, an, it, you know, it was an idea. And what the Buddha wanted, he wanted us to actually be mindful of seeing this in the moment, not thinking about these, but directly experiencing these um, ways that experience presents itself. And, and this is actually the only place where transformation can happen. So I'm going to share with you maybe a more liberating way to practice with these than I initially did and, uh, and to practice here in the unfolding moment of being mindful in the present, the only place we have really to be happy or unhappy or free. And, uh, and also each of these marks reveals a different kind of freedom. The Buddha wanted us to see impermanence, the first one, this changingness of things, all the time. He wanted us to have a continuous experience of this. He wanted us to see this when uh, moving our bodies. This is why we say to you, notice how you sit down. Notice how you stand up from sitting. Notice how you move to the door. He wanted us to really feel, you know, what it's like bending and stretching and turning and walking, sitting, lying down, um, standing up, putting on our clothes, taking off our clothes. Yes, you've heard it, urinating, defecating all the time. He wanted us to see this and how one moment flows into another and begins to morph into the next one. And he wanted us to see this with the wisdom of seeing how experiences arise and pass away. Um, there's a quote, but I left it in my apartment. <laughs> it starts out really beautifully. It says, through the sky blow many different winds. It's talking about the many different feelings that we have as we move this way through our life, moment to moment to moment. Why don't we see this impermanence? Even doing qigong, this unbroken flow of movements, you know, why is it so hard to see this? In the Mahabharata, it said that the eighth wonder of the world is that people see everywhere around them people dying and never believe it's going to happen to them. This is a poem from my new favorite poet, Mar Marie Howe. It's called The Last Time, and it's a poem she wrote she wrote a series of poems after her 28-year-old brother died of HIV in the 1980s uh, before the medications that could prevent that. It's called The Last Time. 
The last time we had dinner together in a restaurant with white tablecloths, he leaned forward and took my two hands in his hands and said, I'm going to die soon. I want you to know that. And I said, I think I do know. And he said, what surprises me is that you don't. And I said, I do. And he said, what? And I said, know that you're going to die. And he said, no. I mean, know that you are. One more. This is from a poet. Uh, this is from Ellen Bass. It's called, If You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them and giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say, thank you, I don't remember, they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt on her powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's fume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? It's so important, actually, for the relief of suffering to see this and to see how, depending on our relationship to it, change or Nietzsche can be either a huge source of grief and suffering and loss or a Dharma doorway. This is from a Rinpoche. When we finally know we're dying and all other sentient beings are dying with us, we start to have a burning almost heartbreaking sense of the fragility and preciousness of each moment and each being. And from this can grow a deep, clear, and limitless compassion for all beings. The Buddha really wanted us to awaken to how we hang on to people, places, and things, even our meditation moments. And why did he want this for us? Because until we see our desperate grasping for stability, until we see our resistance to change, I mean, we can buy insurance against every possible kind of loss, but the hanging on persists and makes us unhappy. Where do you see the changes most vividly in your life? Maybe eating, 
I often think of eating. There's so much dharmic truth we can see there in a bite of food. There's that explosion. I mean, it's so important here, too. You can really feel it. You know, I mean, our eating is so important here in retreat. There's that explosion of, um, of feeling pleasant, uh, pleasant, the sensations, the taste, delicious, hopefully. It is delicious here. And then there's the chewing, the savoring, and the swallowing. And then the mouth is empty. It's a moment of vanishing, goneness. Now, if we allow ourselves to be mindful of that moment of gone, instead of inserting the next forkful loaded uh, with food, we can see that dharmic truth. We can experience that moment of emptiness. And we can see how little time we usually want to spend there. Uh, Greg Mortensen, in his book, uh, Stones into Schools, tells the story of the mullah of a village who was, he just had his mind completely dead set against girls ever going to school. And he talks about how it took eight years for this man to change his mind. Now, during those eight years, girls could have gone, what, from first to eighth grade and had an eighth grade education unheard of in those parts of Pakistan where he was working in the um, Himalayas in uh, northeastern Pakistan. And then after eight years, he changed his mind. And now there are 312 girls in school in that village. And that kind of um, patience, allowing change to happen with that kind of patience is not something we uh, usually have so much of in our culture. But as any village elder from there could tell you, um, things that are worth waiting for, things that are worth doing, can be and maybe should be done very, very slowly. That's a very different mind from uh, the mind that we're uh, conditioned to have. You can see, I mean, I can see impermanence with my grandchildren, Owen and Allie. They were so little and they're growing up. And Allie, who, you know, I remember her little gummy smiles with no teeth, and now she's got this mouthful of, you know, those rabbit teeth when your first permanent teeth, they're so big in your mouth. And um, I can see it with my own body just kind of falling and softening. And, and my mind, too, things falling away, and, and hopefully some softening of opinions anyway, uh, self-judgments, perfectionism, kind of softening, going, going sometimes gone. 
And at the more momentary level, we can see the arising and passing away of all experience, appearing and vanishing and forming and dissolving. And It's so disconcerting to experience this, or it can be. Just this morning, thoughts would appear for this talk, and I think, yeah, that's a good story. I'm going to really tell that story. And then the next moment, it would be gone. I mean, really gone. No memory of it. And over and over again, now you see it, now you don't. Gone. It's very disconcerting. But in that moment of goneness, in our meditation, we can also see how clearly how one breath is replaced by another. And how one experience dies and another one is born. And this is one of the gifts of impermanence. One door closes another door opens and then it leads to finding some wisdom in all this tremendous insecurity and being able to relax with it actually relax with it and then when we can be a little bit mindful about ourselves and relax into it we start to see this huge creativity of the universe just this endlessly being born world of sound appearing or disappearing. And every time something disappears, something new is born. So life is impermanent, but it's not just about loss. It's about renewing. There's not only the dying side of life, there's the being born side of life. What's challenging in our practice is that we're pretty eager to be present with the being born side of life, the sunrise, um, the freshness of things. But the dying side of life is more challenging. So we start to find our balance on this slippery rock in the middle of this roaring stream. And here's how the Buddha describes one who has entered the stream of experience that spring was evoking for us so clearly this morning. Because the eye is impermanent, well, because we can say retreatants. It means monks. It means those of us who are practicing here together. We'll say meditators. The eye is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. The ear is impermanent, changing. The nose the tongue, the body, the mind is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Suzuki Roshi said, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. That's it. And a phrase that has helped me from also from Suzuki Roshi, so much in my practice is he talks about things constantly falling out of balance against a backdrop of perfect balance. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. You're doing a great job. You are. I mean it. Someone else's water. So the dukkha, the queasiness, 
You know, we do live in a very comfort-oriented culture, a scratch-your-itch kind of culture, whole malls built to scratch our various itches. I've never stopped there, but I've driven here so many times past this long, huge mall off the 10 freeways, just like store after store after store after store. And so much of our conditioning is to avoid the things that threaten or disturb us or uh, make us uneasy. But these things are part of our life. They're part of our human condition. And, um, and to avoid them actually creates queasiness. And then, oh my gosh, we think we need a drink or a pill or um, some retail therapy or someone else's warm bed or... Um, you know, we just look out into the empty desert and feel itchy and restless. You know that feeling. And we can't imagine going back into the hall for another sit or taking one more mindful step. It's just, you know, wah, but the beat goes on. It's called samsara, actually. This cycling, this endless... Um, cycling through and wandering through these different mind worlds day after day. There are two kinds of dukkha. The kind that you run away from, which of course is going to follow you everywhere, and the kind that you turn around and face, which will lead you to freedom. It's called the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And when you acknowledge this dukkha, the first freedom that comes is that you realize it's such a relief. It's not personal. And um, Spring will talk more of this about this with the Four Noble Truths, but you realize it's not a mistake. It's not because you chose the wrong job or partner or place to live or, or, or you know, messed up in some way. It's... Um, universal, again, like gravity. It's just the measure of challenge, difficulty, or sorrow that is given to each one of us in this life. And when we are, again, willing to face into and to connect with that particular personal experience, it's really personal. We experience it very personally. Uh, we have to. That's how it comes to us. And when we're willing to face into that very personal experience of the queasiness, the insecurity, the dukkha, uh, the agony sometimes, the heartbreak, whatever level of it it is, it opens into, instead of an experience of um, disconnection, loneliness and separation, it opens out into a connection to something bigger than ourselves, something that really is universal. And it's not just my sadness and my disappointment and my frustration and my... It becomes the sadness, the pain, the disappointment. Achan Sumedho says it so beautifully. He says, this is what it's like to be a human being who is experiencing sorrow. This is what it's like to be a human being who is experiencing queasiness. It's like this. 
this is what it's like. And so through seeing and experiencing and having the guts to feel what it's like, suddenly we really know something about life, about how it is for everybody. And um, it's a lot less scary. We don't have to be so afraid of our own experience or of anybody else's. And then the dukkha is a gateway. It's a gift to, I mean, the gift of it, I'm not going to say it's a gift. The gift of it is that it's a gateway to the great compassionate heart of a Buddha. And it's like, you know, the eye of the needle of our own sharp pain when we're committed to waking up and facing these unsettling truths of our life then we can be like the Buddha. He sat under the tree and he saw the truth of this and it awakened his huge compassion, really boundless compassion. Uh, This is from a poem by Adrian Rich uh, called Marie Curie. Actually, no, it's a poem about Marie Curie and it's called Power. It's the second half of it. Today I was reading about Marie Curie. She must have known she suffered from radiation sickness. Her body bombarded for years by the element she had purified. It seems she denied to the end the source of the cataracts on her eyes, the cracked and separating skin of her finger ends till she could no longer even hold a test tube or a pencil. She died a famous woman, denying her wounds, denying her wounds came from the same source as her power. To be whole and complete on our spiritual path, we have to honor the full catastrophe, the darkness and light, the being born and dying, and everything in between, the whole spectrum of the experience of our humanness and there is the heart's release that comes when we stop denying our wounds and instead allow our hearts to transform them into wisdom and compassion and then even in the face of the oceans of suffering immense and unfathomable suffering in this world there can be joy the joy in our practice that we can actually sit and walk and we can do this together. So the third of these characteristics is anatta, no self, emptiness, um, selflessness, the emptiness of things. And, And when I first heard it, I really thought this is really nihilistic. This is just um, some kind of life-denying teaching and I have a lot of aversion to it and our whole culture, we're so life-affirming and I'm Jewish and it's a very life-affirming um, at least the way I was brought up in it, which was not very observant but, um, but very life-affirming and um, <laughs> but it's really not like that. 
It's actually a description of the mystery of being. And the simplest ways, I mean, there's some really simple ways that we can experience this. One is to begin to notice how unruly the mind is. You've noticed this, maybe, by now, I think. When you tell your mind, don't think, does it listen? There was a Korean Zen master who would just go around through the town ringing a bell and saying, Dayan, Dayan, don't think, don't think. That was his whole teaching. Um, but, you know, we don't control experience. This is a story called Facing Death. I really like this story. It's a little creepy, but I really like it. I see you think so. A certain merchant in Baghdad sent his servant to the market to buy some provisions. A little while later, the servant returned looking white in the face. In a trembling voice, he said, just now in the marketplace, I was jostled by a man in the crowd, and when I turned, I saw it was Mr. Death. He looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Please lend me your horse, because I want to go to Samara, where Mr. Death will not be able to find me. The merchant agreed, and he lent the scared man his horse. The servant mounted the horse and rode away as fast as the horse could gallop. Later that day, the merchant went down to the marketplace and saw Mr. Death standing in the crowd. He approached him and he said, why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? You terrified him. That wasn't a threatening gesture, said Mr. Death. I was just startled. It was a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. <laughs> so we don't control experience, although we really do try. And what a burden it is. And what a burden it lifts for us that we don't have to fix it. We don't even have to own it. Our job here is simply to know it, to see it, to be mindful, to know it. And as it turns out, this is deeply liberating. This is a quote from Jack's book, The Wise Heart. can't. Maybe Jack can find it. <laughs> I can't find it. That's all right. I'm on page 70, actually. <laughs> you know what? I'll paraphrase it. <laughs> um, 
It starts out, after more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that there's not a cell. That's the gist of it. Um, <laughs> um, that's why he writes books, and I don't. But I'm happy not writing them. Um, Okay, here's one also from Jack. That I, I got this one. I know I got this one. Um, this is actually from Nasrudin, but it's a story Jack likes to tell. Um, okay, so Nasrudin, go <laughs> Nasrudin goes into the bank, um, and <laughs> the teller says, would you please identify yourself? So he reaches in his back pocket and he pulls out a little mirror and he looks into the mirror and he says, yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> um, so we have so many identities that we carry. You know, I'm, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, to be a daughter. Two years ago, in this retreat, actually, my mom was dying. Some of you were here, and you remember that time. Um, we have all these different identities. When my mom dies, my dad had already died. Am I not a daughter anymore? Dogen Zenji says, you know, when the child is born, the parent is born too that moment. So we're constantly changing our identity. And the Buddhist understanding is that we can see that our identity is a river of five streams. The stream of our form, our feelings, perceptions, the patterns of reactivity, and our consciousness itself. And when we can look at experience this way, it doesn't negate our conventional understanding of, of who we are. Uh, Itkin Roshi says, when you hear a teaching of no self, be very clear the speaker is there, after all. So we need to remember our Buddha nature, impermanent, empty, constantly changing, and at the same time, where we live, where our car keys are, our social security number, Achan Cha taught this all the time. You should know both the, both the universal and the personal, the realm of forms and the freedom not to cling to them. The forms of the world have their place, but in another way, there's nothing there. To be free 
we need to respect both these truths. He said, I really like this understanding, he said, it's like two sides of a stick. When you pick up the stick, you pick up both sides. This is a poem called The Gate. It's from Marie Howe from the series, um, the series of poems that she wrote after her brother died um, called What the Living Do. This is a poem called The Gate. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown himself by then, done at 28, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he would ever rinse under the cold and running water. This is what you have been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, sort of looking around. So this, uh, this evanescence of things, of the cheese and mustard sandwich, I mean, where did our lunch go? Where did our childhood go? Where did the first day of our retreat go? Owen, when he turned four, he kept asking, where did three go? He was really wondering, okay, today I'm four. Where did three go? is from the Buddha. Meditators, suppose that this great river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A woman with good eyesight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to her to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, meditators, whatever kind of form there is, past, future, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a meditator inspects it, carefully investigates it, and finds out it's empty, hollow, insubstantial. What substance could there be in foam? And then he goes on to say, meditators, suppose in autumn when it's raining and a big raindrops are falling and a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. Again, what would you do? Inspect it, ponder it. What substance could there be in a water bubble? And suppose, meditators, that 
gets really hot here in the desert. Maybe in the next few days, it's going to get really hot. And at high noon, a shimmering mirage appears. What do we do? Inspect it, ponder it, investigate it. What kind of substance can there be in a shimmering mirage? And he goes on, the trunk of a banana tree, um, a magical illusion at a crossroads, a magician, and all of these things so evanescent, so fleeting, so insubstantial. The only reality is the reality of the present moment. This moment that is endlessly giving birth to itself. And this is very mysterious. This is what the Buddha saw when he freed his heart. He took his seat right in the middle of it. My teacher, my heart teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, with whom I practiced from the time I met her in 1979 until she died 11 years later in 1990. When she was dying, she was slipping in and out of being conscious. And at one point, she had sort of slipped away and then she came back and she just said, wonderful peace no one there. There's a Mary Oliver poem, could not find it. (laughs) But I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Now paraphrasing Mary Oliver may leave a little bit to be desired, but this will just be a very vivid experience of the unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha of life having to listen to me paraphrase Mary Oliver. So it's a poem about, uh, she sees a fox and she gets really quiet. She says, I won't touch anything. I won't touch a leaf. I won't touch a blackberry. I won't touch anything. She wants to stay so still. And she goes unnoticed by the fox who begins to walk down the hill. And she says, and these are her words, this is the world. It is beautiful. I'm not in it. Nisargadatta says, wisdom says, I'm nothing. Love says, I'm everything. And between these two, my life flows. That's what I hear in that poem. Just her tremendous reverence and love for the beauty of this world. And her understanding that to truly see it, to truly receive it, She had to not be there in it. I come from Cambridge where I was born and lived almost 30 years of my adult life. And the whole time we lived there, we only had one earthquake and it was really just the mildest swaying of the house plants, the hanging plants in my apartment, that was all. 
in Harvard Square, the old Cambridge Baptist Church. Uh, it even has a, a tall stone steeple. I mean, in New England, unlike uh, Haiti or Chile or Tibet, the ground is solid. It's trustworthy in New England. The ground is under control. In California, we understand that you don't build steeples out of stones that can come tumbling down on people's heads and soft, uh, vulnerable bodies. We think we're not like Haiti here in the US, in our country. We know how to build things that are safe, structurally sound. It's too bad engineers didn't build our financial system, isn't it? But anyway, uh, we live on this shaky ground of anicca, anatta, and dukkha. We build our lives and our futures on it. Seeing the shaking of the ground changes your relationship to it. Like that low row of buildings we watched shake up and down, up and down, and then collapse, just pancake, through the surveillance camera on a street in Haiti. This is from Theodore Rothke. God bless the ground. I shall walk softly there and learn by going where I have to go. This shaking keeps me steady. I should know what falls away is always and is near. Even so, we wake up and stand up and make the effort to create a life that's as wise and kind as possible. And this takes courage to build a life, to build something knowing that even if we get it right, even if we get it right, it can be shaken and destroyed. And this knowing asks us to be brave and to love each other, even though what's true about every relationship is that it will end. This shaking keeps me steady. I should know. What falls away is always and is near. What falls away is always. And this is the last gift or grace of emptiness, of this shaking and unsteadiness, of the mystery of being that instead of taking us away from the world, when always falls away, then everything is here, near. The whole universe can pour through us and then being not so insistently in it, being a little bit of nothing, we can be more of everything. So this shaking does keep me steady. I should know. And through knowing this, we see it's really, it's all connected. Everything. Perfect ending. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.